Rock Bottom by Sarah Connors. After everything that's gone on, it's not surprising no one's thought to ask me how I'm doing since Morva went away. She was late going, obviously, but people haven't thought to ask how empty I'd find the house or how sad I'd feel when I wake up to the sound of her not being here. Bloody house, echoes it does. See, people around here know I'm a coper. They know how independent I am. But because they haven't asked, I can't bother them with my worries. Like how she might get herself lost in the big city. I'm not being funny, but Morva's got the worst sense of direction. Used to get lost coming back from the shops. Hopeless she is. Anyways... She'll be home soon for Christmas. Day after tomorrow, we're going to have the best one yet. Putting the tree up today and I've spent a fortune on presents. Bloody fortune. Oh, it'll be lovely. I can't believe how much I've missed hearing her crash about the place. Oh, and that slight smell of her feet. Not horrendous, but just on the cusp of needing a bath. Marva, you're bloody stinking, I used to say. But she'd get out of bed, not even brush her teeth or have a shower, still in the clothes she'd slept in and get straight down to her college work, at her desk, tapping away on the computer. She worked hard, so bloody hard. Deserved it so much. When it was confirmed, she had her place at Oxford. Oh, I was proud of her. Bought her a cake, bottle of bubbly, made a right night of it. But inside... That's when the grief set in. The rest of the summer was like a wake. Everyone banging on about Covid and all I could think of was her going. The mornings were the worst. I had this ache. I mean, a real ache in my chest and I'd feel slightly sick. And before I'd even lifted my head off the pillow and was properly awake, there'd be tears rolling down my face. I worry more about how she's managing without me. After all that's gone on, she's not a coper. She's some funny when it comes to meeting new people. Peggy, up at number 31, kept banging on about how Morva could do the same course at Falmouth and save all that bother of going up country and wasting good money on rent. Kept going on about how all her boys are still here in Cornwall where they belong and how her Caleb got his college done up at Camborne. It happened two nights before she was due to leave. I had most of her things packed up. Train booked. The university, they were dead nice and I didn't feel they were the least bit snooty. Said they'd be willing to let her start a few weeks late and they'd hold on to her room. See, generally speaking, most people are as good as gold when your house catches fire. Joyce and Denzel at number seven offered to put us up that first night. We'd never really spoken to them before, apart from the odd time Denzel picked us up in his taxi. When we'd do the Thursday night clap, they'd never wave. I couldn't work out if Denzel was a bit shy or just bloody rude. Oh, but he used to play his trombone every Thursday, just before the 8pm clap, and bloody Ellie, some boy, can't half belt out a tune. Anyways, the night of the fire... I was surprised to see Joyce at the hospital waiting for us to be discharged. Joyce was all smiles, but there was nothing in the eyes. 
packed us into a new car and whooshed us back to her place. More of us started to cry as we passed her house. I couldn't look. The neighbours, oh, I'll never forget it, all lined up they were as Joyce pulled her car in, clapping us back into the estate. And Denzel there on the doorstep with the biggest smile. See, we're some popular in our road. I felt like a celebrity. Morval was mortified. She's a shy little thing. Doesn't like to be the centre of attention. I remember thinking how nice Joyce's house smelled. Of all the things to be going through my head. Well, they haven't got kids, so I suppose it's easier to keep the house nice. Took months to fix the damage. That's why Morval was so late going. Mrs Bryant next door still not moved into her place. She's staying with her daughter up country for Christmas, which is nice. I'll not hear a word said about her. She's an old lady and accidents happen. Oh, but I was glad when everything was sorted and we were back in our house. And it's nice to be settled home where people are pleased to see you. Joyce never came round to visit like she said she would. In fact, I think she was the only one on the street who didn't send a card. Well, it was a strange time for everyone. Then up at the university started giving more of her a hard time for not starting by the end of October. I bloody told them the child's traumatised. She needs to be here with her mother. Oh. I mean, you need to stand up for them, don't you? Do anything for my mother, I would. Denzel saw that the night of the fire. Had to prise my hands off the doorframe he did because I thought my mother was still in there. I've hardly seen him since I moved back. Do you know his wife is the only one on the street who didn't send a welcome home card? Anyway, my mother will be home tomorrow. She's not coping and I told them at the university it's too soon. She needs to be here with her mother. The thing that drives me mad about people round here is their enthusiasm for fads. I'll go further than that. It's their enthusiasm for taking fads too far. The whole clapping thing for the NHS is a good example. See, I have no issue with the clapping. Back then, it did us all good. Whole country doing something together. But this lot turned it into a farce, bringing chairs out with bottles of beer or glasses of wine. Mary Rose up at number 20 hated all the fuss that was made when she'd come home after a shift. But people were desperate to show their appreciation to the NHS. I get that. But when word got out that I was using the taxi for NHS runs, blood deliveries or prescription runs and that sort, well, one Thursday night, I happened to come home at just gone eight, see? And they all started clapping me, as if I was some sort of hero. Cheering and saying, go on, Denzel, you beauty, and such likes. And then John bloody Trawarther started playing his trombone. Too much. And just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, some bright bugger decided that on Tuesday nights we should start singing from our bloody bedroom windows. We weren't stuck in apartments like those poor devils in Italy. We've all got front and back gardens on this road, you know. In it together, 
in it together. This was the mantra going round the estate. But it didn't feel real to me. It was like it was imposed on us and everyone was just going along with it. Bit like the lead up to midnight on New Year's Eve. And I don't like that carry-on, see? Never have done, never will. I don't do well with over-familiarity. The minute lockdown eased, things returned to the way they were. Polite morning nods when you walked the dog, and each family got on with their own lives. And then the fire happened at Maureen's. Totally out of the blue. And that night, there really was a feeling of well, togetherness. Watching a fire, literally in front of your eyes, the sheer power of it, the wildness, time seemed a step behind itself. I don't think I've ever felt more attached to any group of human beings in my entire life as I did that night. But the fire seemed contained at the back of the house. I found her straight away. The layout's the same as our place. Went straight in the front room and that's where she was, lying on the floor and surrounded by... So there it is. As far as this lot are concerned, I saved her. Hero of the hour. I didn't feel like one. I felt like I was privy to a grubby secret. But that night, all that mattered was our little street and the people on it. We all stood out for what seemed like hours after they took them off to the hospital. Standing at a safe distance from the fire, watching it soar into the stars. Caught hold of next door like it was paper. If the police hadn't moved us on, I'd say we'd have stayed out there all night. Just to be together. Witnesses. I couldn't stop shaking for hours after, thanking my lucky stars as I cried into the dog's fur so Joyce couldn't see me. So when she said about them staying here, well, I wasn't myself. And I could see that look in her eyes. No one I've ever met had a look quite like Joyce's. Pure love. That's the only way I can describe it. Cut me in two every time she had that look. Well, it must have been dawn when Joyce brought them back to the house. Whole neighbourhood tucked up safe in their beds. Morva seemed to be the one holding her mum up, which makes me choke up when I think about it. She's only a kid. Needs her mum to look after her and not the other ways round. I could see Joyce welling up, looking at Morva and thinking. We've watched her grow up, see? Worried about her from a distance. But what I wasn't expecting was the intrusion. Neighbours smiling admiringly at me and Joyce for taking them in, bringing packages of food around to us like we were a bloody food bank. We had plenty of supplies in the fridge. And of course, this was all before the 
I wonder how it started conversations began. Before the police got involved and took young Morver off for questioning. I knew she had nothing to do with it. Lots of curtains twitching and disapproving looks and give me my banana pavlova back. I mean, banana pavlova. You could almost feel the delight and indignation from some of them on this estate. Not so clever as she thought she was, even after being in the Cornishman for getting into Oxford. Academic to arsonist, in one collective twitch of the curtain. Anyway, it was months ago. I was surprised to see her today at the train station. She looked, well, different, a bit more worldly or something. I thought it was strange she was getting off the train at Truro if she was coming home to her mum's for Christmas. Miles from home, that is. And when she saw me, she hung back a bit, pretended she was looking for something in her bag and let the chap behind her take my cab. I don't blame her, poor mite. I don't blame her. One thing I hate about the people around here they can't wait for you to take a fall. I knew it would be hard, leaving her. And when I think about it too much, I get this pain in my chest. Not so often now, but when I first got to Oxford, I'd be just falling off to sleep and realise the pillow was wet. I wouldn't even know I was thinking about her. At first... There was lots of teasing about my accent. Most of them hadn't met anyone like me from Cornwall, let alone been there, which shocked me, considering the volume of holidaymakers we have. I just thought everyone must have visited at some point. But I've surprised myself. I've made some friends and feel less lonely than I did at home. When I phone, Mum says I don't sound Cornish no more. She says that a lot. I've learnt to skirt around her, pretend I don't hear the nasty things she says. I suppose, on the upside, she won't remember what she said to me the next morning, so that's better for her. Because she can't help it. I'm not making excuses for her. She literally can't help herself. The night we came back from the hospital and we passed our house, she was inconsolable. Because she knows... She knows what she's doing to us both. And I can't bear to see her crying. People don't think it's real because she's been drinking, but it is real to her in that moment. Things took so long to sort out. What with the investigation? I never thought I'd get away. And to be honest, it was a relief. People at uni don't really know what happened, so nobody asks any questions. Apart from my counsellor, who worries that I'm not dealing with the trauma of the fire. But I keep telling her, dealing with mother is the trauma. Living with her, leaving her, loving her. And I don't know that all the counselling in the world will help me deal with that. 
it's hard not to take your mother personally. Because when she messes up, doesn't turn up for something important, or drinks so much she's in bed for two days, or makes aggressive or ranting phone calls to my uni tutor, or sets your house on fire, it's hard not to think she's doing it because she don't love me enough. But I know she does. After the fire, when the police came, I didn't have any expectation that she would be able to do anything to help me. Rushed to my defence to say it was her, because she doesn't live in our reality. Her entire existence reinvents itself hour by hour. Mother didn't come to the police station. I knew exactly what she'd do. And she did. She got shit-faced. I wasn't at the station long before they said I could go home. Said there'd been a witness statement from one of the neighbours. Denzel thought it would be better for his Joyce if we found somewhere else to stay. I've always been a bit scared of Joyce. I remember years ago when I was a kid, I bumped into her at the shops. She seemed unsteady when she was talking and told me her daughter would have been the same age as me and she kept sweeping my fringe back behind my ears. She looked so sad, it scared me. She smelled like mother. I've got to keep reminding myself. I'm not doing this out of spite or hate. Because I don't hate the real her. I can separate the two. That's my coping strategy. My real mother and the imposter. People might not believe me, but I've been her carer since I was a little girl. You see, quite often, you could be talking to her for ages without realising she's had a drink. I've helped keep it secret for years. Sometimes you've just got to accept that you have to let go and let them help themselves. And until the imposter hits rock bottom, she won't help herself. So that's me. I'm her rock bottom. Or the absence of me will be. She's expecting me home today for the Christmas holidays. But I won't be there. If I let the fear in. Seeing her face when she realises that I'm not coming back, I'd stay on the train all the way to Penzance. I'd rush home to the imposter and I would watch it destroy us both. But what I hold on to, gaze at in my mind's eye, is a future. Her staring out of the window, waiting for me to walk down the path. The house will be spotless, tree twinkling with fairy lights, fire lit and the table laid. And she'll be there, looking beautiful, welcoming her child home. Rock Bottom was written by Sarah Connors. Maureen was read by Nina Hills, Denzel by Keith Sparrow, and Morva by me, Connie Crosby. It was directed by Anna Maria Murphy, sound recording by Phil Innes, and this is a Story Republic production.